uh, very much for coming along, coming along this evening to this uh, event on the long legacy, London 2062. Uh, UCL calls itself, or names itself, London's Global University. That might have originally been a name coined to irritate the other universities in London. Um, however, I think time has shown that it has a degree of resonance. And as a global university, we have asked ourselves the question, what is the role of a leading university in the world? And we feel that it's important that not only do we carry out world-class research, but that we actually integrate and cross-tension, if you like, the expertise that we have in different disciplines to try to find solutions to globally significant problems. So as Vice Provost for Research, my responsibility is to try to encourage colleagues to cross the traditional divide of different disciplines to come up with solutions or possible solutions to major problems. And as a result, what we've done at UCL is, is to create and define four grand challenges which focus on major societal issues which the world faces. The first of these grand challenges is global health. Why is it that citizens of sub-Saharan African countries are actually dying from diseases that can be readily treated here at UCH or, or elsewhere? The second of our grand challenges is sustainable cities, and that's spawned some of the activity that we'll talk about tonight. Our third grand challenge is intercultural interaction, and our fourth grand challenge is human well-being. Now, these grand challenges are being, if you like, evolved over, over the last couple of years and continue to do so. But tonight, we are focusing on, on the cities problem. And in the sustainable cities equation and, and, and studies that we've been carrying out at UCL, focused on a variety of things. For instance, recently in May, we published a commission with the Lancet um, on healthy cities. What is it one has to do to ensure that hit it, cities around the world are healthy places and engender healthy uh, lives for their citizens. But tonight we focus on the analysis of colleagues uh, at UCL and outside UCL that have been working in the last year or so on aspects related to, to London and the future of London. And we titled that, titled that project London 2062, a 50-year view forward as to what are the challenges, what are the issues that this wonderful metropolitan city face and how is it that we could start thinking now in a way which will avoid and alleviate some of the challenges and the negatives which uh, could occur and obviously what is this that we need to do to conserve the positive features of London. And I think in this summer We've all seen some of the fabulous things that bring London to life and what makes London a special place. And I think it's really exciting tonight to be able to talk about how it is that we can capture, grow that, and actually have this long legacy 50 years after the Olympics. So I'm delighted this evening that we have a number of colleagues who have been involved with the thinking and the development of uh, this analysis. And we'll be hearing from three of them this evening. Later on in the year, or maybe at the beginning of 2013, we will be publishing a book which captures the ideas 
of a number of uh, other colleagues and which we'll be, I think, launching a little bit later on in there. But I'd like to start this evening, therefore, by asking my colleagues, three colleagues, to come and give some of their thoughts and about some of the issues. And after they've uh, spoken, we'll be able to have a dialogue and discussion with the um, questions from the audience. So to start uh, this evening, I'd like to uh, introduce to you Ben Harrison, who is the director of Future of London and has been involved in the discussions throughout uh, the last uh, uh, year or so and is going to give us a synoptic overview of some of the thinking which has been developed. So, Ben, can I pass over to you? Yes, it is. Can I just start by asking if you can all hear me all right? Is the mic... It sounds like it is. Excellent. Um, thank you very much, David, um, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, before I start um, with uh, what I have prepared to say tonight, um, I just also want to thank uh, Sarah Bell, Mark Tudor-Jones, um, James Paskins and Ian Scott um, from UCL for uh, offering uh, the invitation to Future of London um, to come and get involved in this programme of work. Um, it's been a fantastically interesting one, uh, and uh, we specifically were involved in running a series of seminars uh, at the start of this year looking at a number of different related disciplines and policy areas, and I'm going to say a bit more about that uh, in a moment. <clears throat> Before I do that, though, I do want to just take the opportunity to uh, give a bit of an introduction to Future of London. Um, we're a relatively young organisation, and I'm, I'm conscious that um, this, uh, our involvement in this series may well be the first time that many of you have come across us as, as an organisation. So I'll do a brief run-through of that, and then following that, um, I will um, give a, a brief overview, as, as, as David mentioned, of um, some of the areas where we were able to find some consensus um, from our events and, uh, and the contributions that, that were made within them, and then some point, key points of difference. Um, going forward about London's future over the next 50 years. So to begin, um, what is Future of London? Well, as our strapline says, we're an independent, uh, not-for-profit uh, policy network focused on the big challenges facing regeneration, housing and economic development practitioners in London. What does that mean specifically? Well, we are a membership organisation bringing together London boroughs, uh, registered providers and housing associations, the GLA, TfL, uh, and overall we have three main programmes of activity. Uh, the first is focused on developing the next generation of uh, regeneration leaders in London. Uh, we run a training and development programme called the Future London Leaders. Uh, and that identifies individuals from across our membership who tend to be between five and seven years into their career um, and provides a range of development and networking opportunities for them. We're into the fourth round of that program. It's been hugely successful and is, and is <coughs> excuse me, a very popular part of our program, and we're about to launch the next round uh, next month. Um, we also um, offer our members various forums uh, uh, to share best practice and innovative thinking across the London uh, Practitioner Network. Um, we're very conscious that, uh, despite being a global city, actually a lot of what goes on in London can be surprisingly parochial, and building relationships across borough boundaries and between organisations is something which uh, we, we believe is absolutely vital if we're going to learn the lessons uh, from uh, the various uh, programmes of regeneration underway across the capital. 
And finally, we also produce um, uh, various outputs from a, from a research and a policy point of view, um, but really with a specific focus on, on pieces of work that will be of practical assistance uh, and, and are really focused on delivery. And hopefully, you've seen a few copies of reports that we've launched over the past uh, 12 months this evening. Um, they've tended to focus on um, the implementation of various pieces of government legislation, most notably the Green Deal um, and, and how that can work in London. And we've just published a recent report, uh, a report recently on um, flows of overseas investment into the London property market, what that's doing um, to house prices and what it means um, going forward uh, for housing policy. So um, to deliver this work, we engage in a range of partnerships, uh, working with a diverse group of organisations from UCL through to the Joseph Rowntree Foundation, major house builders and, uh, and, and, and big city law firms uh, to deliver um, a, a, a vibrant programme, as I say, with a number of different component parts. Um, our membership for 2012 um, is here. Uh, we're just about to finalise that for 2013. Um, and if you are interested in getting involved in, involved in our network, then please do visit our website at futureoflondon.org.uk. And there's various different, um, various different ways that you can become individually uh, involved or, or, or as an organisation. So that's the mini sales pitch over. Um, turning to think about... London 2062 and the seminar series that we collaborated with Sarah Mark and colleagues on in the uh, spring of this year. The seminar series itself um, consisted of four sessions. Um, we welcomed into, uh, a total of, of, of over 100 uh, participants drawn both from the academic community um, but also from our practitioner network. Um, each was designed um, to explore um, a specific topic, uh, energy, housing, um, transport and the economy, looking ahead over a 50-year timeline. Um, and alongside these events, you'll have no doubt seen that uh, colleagues at UCL and, and ourselves have published a, a range of think pieces, articles and essays. And, and as David mentioned, there is a, a more substantial output coming um, next year. In terms of the sessions um, themselves and, and what we... Uh, the themes that emerged from them. Well, clearly we set our contributors a, a, a very large and probably unfair challenge um, to conceive of what London's going to be like over a 50-year timeline. It's not um, a usual task that, that, that you present to people that you're inviting to come and speak in an event. Um, and I, think, I guess perhaps reflecting the, sort of the, the pre-Olympics, double-dip recession gloom that pervaded uh, over London uh, at that time, it's fair to say that we heard some fairly terrifying projections of what London was going to be like in 50 years' time. Um, overcrowded and, and bursting at the seams, subject to the uh, mal-effects of large temperature increases and, and rising sea levels as a result of global climate change, more unequal than ever, and with an economy unable to compete with rising global megacities uh, in the East. Um, of course, others were simply holding out the hope that the hoverboards that we were promised by the year 2000 would have materialised by then. But by and large, it, it, was, it was a pessimistic um, set, of, uh, uh, set of contributions that, that we received from a number of, from a number of individuals. Um, having said that, though, there were definite areas of consensus and disagreement both between and within the practitioner and academic groups that we talked, uh, that we talked to and, and, and who presented to us. Uh, and I'd just now like to, to, to highlight a few of these, um, perhaps to inform some of the discussion um, that we're going to have later on uh, in, in the evening. So first of all, to, to look at where um, there was a degree of consensus amongst our, our con contributors. Um, 
when taking into account a rather unscientific show of hands uh, in the seminar, uh, looking at specifically at the economy, um, but also taken with the general nature and tone of contributions throughout the series, it seemed pretty clear that most people were of the view that London will continue to be an unequal place and actually will become more unequal over the next 50 years as things stand. Um, Many were concerned with the gap between those at the bottom and the top of the income and well-being uh, scales uh, continuing to increase, and, and in particular, disparities between inner and outer London um, also becoming wider. Secondly, uh, when considering energy policy, um, all four of our sector specialists highlighted the Danish model of uh, decentralised energy as a key example that London should look to follow in the years ahead. Uh, and with colleagues uh, both within the GLA and in our borough members uh, already pursuing schemes in this regard, uh, there was certainly some degree of optimism that progress uh, in, this, in this area will be possible and that this will be a, a very important component part of London meeting its carbon reduction commitments by, uh, by the 2062. Third, um, the successful delivery of Crossrail is clearly vital uh, to the future development of London. Um, but we should also be actively considering what comes next in terms of major investments in London's transport. Um, and there was a sense that perhaps more thought needs to be given for, to the period between 2020 and 2040 in terms of what that investment's going to look like and how transport can meet the needs of a changing London economy over that period of time. And fourth and finally, it was widely recognised that tough decisions are going to be needed, are, are going to, be needed uh, to improve London's energy efficiency and reduce its carbon output of its building stock, uh, of its built environment rather. Um, specific policy initiatives like the Green Deal and Eco have felt to be good places to start, but clearly there are significant financial and delivery hurdles that need to be uh, cleared if London is to meet, uh, if these schemes are to be widely taken up and, and their benefits felt across London. And given that the proportion of the, uh, the uh, built environment that is still going to be in use in London in, the in, in 50 years' time is, is so high, it really does need to be a major priority for London uh, in the years ahead. And then turning to some of the areas where there was more disagreement or, or, or uncertainty around where London will be in the next, in the ne in the next 50 years. Um, uh, much discussion um, was uh, had over whether we need a new economic model in light of the recent financial crisis um, and uh, whether uh, the, the, the old way of assessing and looking at London's economy uh, was somehow no longer fit for purpose. Um, on the other hand, many of our contributors uh, felt that actually to uh, throw the baby out with the bathwater and not play to London's existing strengths would be, a, would be a huge mistake. And I think um, finding a resolution within those two points of view um, was probably beyond the two hours that we, uh, that we had to debate it. But it's something which is going to be developing over the coming years. Um, and really, I think, a key point of focus for Future of London going forward is going to be thinking, well, if we are serious about developing a more polycentric London economy with a diverse uh, set of sectors stretching uh, beyond financial services but taking advantage of new opportunities in the digital economy, what does that really look like? And what as practitioners uh, do uh, we need to do uh, in order to achieve it? Um, 
secondly, um, a clear area of uncertainty um, was around what, if any, new powers London should seek from central government. Um, clearly, we have in power at the moment a government that is serious about devolving power to a, a local area. Um, uh, since the events uh, were held, we've obviously seen city deals and a, a significant devolution of power to Leeds and Manchester and Newcastle. Um, and the Localism Act, it's true, did bring additional powers to, to the mayorality uh, in London and, and increased uh, uh, the scope of, of uh, mayoral involvement in housing development and, and, and other areas. But I think a, a key question for, for the next two to three years will, will really be, well, should London be looking for a new settlement? Um, to deliver uh, growth uh, in, in the period ahead. Uh, and will, you know, is, is it right that London, for instance, takes control uh, fully of, of the business rate, for example, which has been long on the agenda, um, uh, or, 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 other, or other pots of money um, that could potentially be used to boost investment in the capital? Not without controversy, not without, you know, uh, extremely complicated areas, but nevertheless, <coughs> With Boris Johnson probably never being more powerful than uh, than he is right now, um, you would imagine that uh, the scope for him to go back to David Cameron and, and demand a better settlement for London uh, will be one to look out for. Um, thirdly, and, and perhaps most controversially of all, uh, the future of aviation policy in London um, was a big feature of our transport session. Um, do we expand our existing airport capacity incrementally, build a new hub airport, uh, essentially for Europe in the Thames estuary, uh, or actually do nothing and take the view that London's priorities uh, should lie elsewhere and that the costs of, of, of increasing air travel in London uh, to perhaps some of our other aims and ambitions for the capital would be too great and, uh, and, and therefore not worth doing. Clearly, it's a hot, top polit uh, hot topic politically, so hot, in fact, that it's been kicked well and truly into the long grass uh, for this parliament uh, with, with, with none of the major parties that keen to engage with it. Nevertheless, the issue is going to continue to dominate public debate, and it's not a decision that can be put off forever. Uh, and whichever way it goes, um, it's going to have major implications for the future direction of development in the capital, geographically, environmentally, and socially. And fourth and finally, um, and, 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 and extremely importantly, how can London deliver the number and types of new homes it requires to meet the needs of, a, of, a, of a, a population that's projected to grow significantly over the decades ahead, uh, while also ensuring that access to this housing is widened. Um, there is consensus across the practitioner uh, uh, network that uh, in London that some of the old models for delivering housing, and in particular affordable housing, uh, are now dead in the water. We are very unlikely to see a return to the levels of public subsidy for affordable housing in London that we've seen prior to 2010, and therefore a new model of investment is required. Um, quite what that's going to look like is not clear right now, but we have a, probably a two-year window uh, before 2015 to really think about what that should look like for London um, and be proactive about it. So I think that's going to be a key priority uh, in the years ahead, and we'll have a, a, a very long-lasting uh, uh, impacts in uh, looking forward to 2062. So those are some themes and questions emerging from the 2062 event series, um, and I hope they can inform and spark some discussion uh, later on this evening. They're by no means comprehensive, um, but each will have a fundamental bearing on the kind of city that we inhabit uh, over the coming decades. Future of London will certainly be interrogating these issues in more detail over the coming months, um, and in doing so, we look forward to continuing our partnership with UCL uh, uh, 
And as I mentioned earlier in the evening, if, if you do want to know more about Future London or become actively engaged in some of our projects and programs, then please do visit the website or, or, or catch myself um, later on this evening. And uh, I look forward to answering your questions um, as and when we move to that part. I'll hand over to Ben now. Thank you very much, so there we have a synoptic quick whistle-stop tour through some of the topics that have been uh, discussed. Next, we're going to hear from uh, Ben Kampkin, who is a senior lecturer in the Bartlett School here at uh, UCL and director of the UCL Urban Laboratory on some aspects of the urban regeneration challenges, focusing now on a little specific window following up that more general um, oversight. So, Ben, over to you. Down. Uh, thanks very much, and thank you for um, inviting me to speak this evening and to be part of the London 2062 project. I think it's been a really excellent initiative, so thanks to the colleagues that have been organising it, both in UCL and in Future for London. Um, we've had some really stimulating conversations, and I think it's really important to have these conversations uh, between uh, academic researchers and practitioners and policy makers around these really important questions. I guess. I've been involved with two London 2062 events, so I did two different talks, um, and I seem to have spent both of them trying to avoid talking about the long-distant future in different ways, trying to avoid this um, idea of future-gazing. Um, but um, what I wanted to do today was really think through some of the ideas that came out of the London 2062 housing workshop that I participated in, in relation um, and, and not all of those ideas were specifically about housing, actually. Some of them were about um, wider regeneration issues and to think about those, those in relation to the Olympic legacy. So and I should say also that this comes partly out of my own research interest um, in uh, regeneration and the history of regeneration and also discussions that we've been having in the Urban Laboratory at UCL, which is an interdisciplinary centre for thinking about cities and urbanisation that goes across uh, UCL. So, there are ideas in here that come from discussions with colleagues recently as well. Um, in terms of regeneration, I wanted just to start by saying 50 years is not a long time. Um, this, if we look back at London 50 years ago, uh, there's a noticeable correlation between the areas that we see here identified in the most recent London plan as opportunity areas and the areas that were identified in the 1943 County of London plan as opportunity areas. So this tells us something. Um, these areas that are now designated for future growth have, uh, are likely to still be growing in opportunity areas in 50 years' time. And the built environment typically changes at a, a very slow rate. An estimated 75% of London's building stock will be the same in London 2062. This was one of the figures that stuck in my mind from the discussions in the, in the workshops that we had. But as well as built form, the underlying characteristics of different forms of urbanization obviously have very long-term consequences. And where those are flawed, uh, they could work precisely against the kind of values of equality, diversity, social inclusivity that we uh, talk about when we talk about the current aims of regeneration in London. So 
the kinds of structures of urbanization can cause intractable problems as well as um, improvements for the future. Another point I think that came out of the workshops to me was that our evaluations of the success or failure of different regeneration projects and of the places that are their focus tend to be obfuscated by powerful rhetoric and uh, political ideology. And as the political landscape changes, one generation's utopian schemes become the ruinous backdrop for the next one's vision of a better future. Um, the large-scale physical transformation of the Olympic Park is obviously a very specific kind of urbanization that's taken place very quickly under special circumstances, eased through by massive public funding, um, by the UK's largest ever compulsory, public, uh, compulsory purchase order, and the ability to use the ODA's phrase to lock down the site temporarily uh, to get this done. Um, and the area's immediate future will be governed by a very particular uh, an exceptional kind of um, body, the Merrill Development Corporation, uh, which is given special powers. Um, so I think uh, an, uh, how that body represents the community's interests is, is obviously a key issue looking forward to the next 50 years. The Games have obviously provided an extraordinary global spectacle. The Olympic Park is a, has kind of exists as an image itself. Um, but it's also a place of image making and this image of this transformation, this transformed park has been circulated around the world. But within this, any sense of perhaps the specifics of, of Stratford and what Stratford needs, what the, the local area uh, needs, has perhaps been temporarily lost. So we need to now go back to that discussion about um, regeneration in a very specific part of London with a very specific history specific community. Um, and obviously the narrative through which the regeneration has taken place has been about a place of poverty, a place of industrial contamination that has literally been regenerated, that, that it's been cleansed somehow, reconfigured as, as a place of um, cultural capital, as a place of consumerism. And the Olympics is a kind of stepping stone on this yellow brick road towards um, tech city in the, the long-term uh, regeneration plan. Um, we, I mean, we could debate the, the direct and abstract value of the gains themselves endlessly, but I don't think that's really the purpose of tonight. I think what I would like to do is, is focus, and for us to focus constructively on a discussion about what are the values that should underpin regeneration going forward for the next 50 years. Um, the justification has been that the Olympics will accelerate the regeneration of uh, of this part of London uh, for the benefit of the local community. So that's what we should try and keep the focus on over the next 50 years. And politicians have already been, or, and the media have, as I've been watching uh, the Olympics and the news, have already been claiming the regeneration of East London. Um, but that seems kind of incongruous when you actually go to and walk around Stratford and you walk um, down Stratford High Street, that there's still this, there's a disconnect. And I know there is a plan to, um, to regenerate Stratford High Street, but the fact that it's happened in this reverse order of the park first does leave this disconnect, and one feel, can't help feeling um, a sense of a, a kind of isolated Olympic Park, a kind of Vegas-like experience as you walk around it. Um, this island within the urban fabric, and which isn't yet integrated into its context, and that's obviously the challenge for the next 50 years. And you know, the, the worrying. Um, 
image that comes to mind is of Canary Wharf and the boundaries of Canary Wharf and the fact, you know, that when you walk from Canary Wharf to Poplar, there's this sudden um, transition and it's still not, not integrated. So I think that, you know, that's a kind of warning that we have to have in mind when we think about integrating this uh, new site within to the fabric of the city. So just to go back to the idea of the transformation, the, the literal regeneration, the cleaning up of the soil, which has obviously been um, a very key part of the discourse about the transformation of this area. Uh, this is an image taken by Mike Wells um, on, on the website Games Monitor of some of the earth waiting to be cleaned in these big washing machines. For, for me, this was one of the most striking images of the redevelopment process, um, the soil waiting to be cleansed. And, uh, you know, this is historically, uh, regeneration in London has always been propelled by these narratives of dirt and disorder and the need for it to be cleansed, okay? So, um, and in this case, it's about the, um, the bioremediation of the soil. So there's a kind of pseudo-scientific justification for regeneration going on there, which I think is interesting. Um, and it also fits into a longer tradition of, of, of the East End being described as the kind of dirty other to the West End of London. Um, but I think what's striking is that although public health narratives and narratives of cleansing have always driven regeneration, in this case, um, unlike the, the, the social values and public health initiatives that underpinned urban change in the mid-20th century with the expansion of the welfare estate, um, some, somehow this public health narrative is not quite connected. It's part of the discourse, but actually um, the, the idea of making the area economically productive again seems to be the key driver. So uh, that's something that I want to come, come back to um, later on. I want now just to think about this concept of regeneration. You don't get much more lit sorry, literal uh, images of regeneration than this. Um, but this, re this word has been critiqued a lot recently by urban researchers. So, for example, Michael Edwards, who's at UCL in the planning school, who may be in the audience somewhere, I can't see, um, writes of it as a slippery word that's used to legitimize almost every construction project. Um, another academic working in architecture writes that property development is not the same thing as regeneration. Uh, I think these are key things to bear in mind. Uh, another academic, Robbie, Rob, Robert Furby, talks about the longer history of this metaphor as a very ancient term that has these kind of religious and spiritual and biological um, connotations. So, um, but, but in, in the modern period also has this quite conservative idea of, of, of um, personal transformation and empowerment as well. So I think it's important to, to bear these different um, ideas of regeneration in mind when we, we think about it and to try and be quite precise about what we mean with it. And in London, the concept has been in use in relation to urban development um, since the, the mid-20s, uh, sorry, the mid-20th century, but since the 80s has become very prevalent. Um, it's in the County of London plan. Um, it's likely still to be around in 2062, um, but in the intervening period between the 40s and now, the meaning has changed quite radically. So in the County of London plan, there's a sense that the city might regenerate itself. Um, there's a sense um, that if it where, where the city doesn't regenerate itself, that's where it needs major restructuring and renewal, um, which is quite similar to a kind of uh, uh, the American academic Jane Jacobs idea of regeneration, which is more about kind of in incremental change 
It's from the bottom up. Um, um, and in the 40s also in London, it's about focusing on the improvement of living conditions for those living in poverty. Since then, regeneration has continued to accrue different meanings as a multi-layered metaphor. And although if the rhetoric of regeneration is now balanced between economic and social values, in practice, it seems to focus overridingly on economic growth. Um, and regeneration will be successful, I read in a major newspaper um, finance section yesterday, um, in, the, in the Olympic case, if in the longer term we see increasing overseas wealth flowing into the area and rich West Londoners moving east. Okay, this is like a fairly straightforward idea of regeneration as, as gentrification by bringing in outsiders. But regeneration in the Olympic context also proceeds to this idea of trickle-down, trickle the, the idea of trickle-down um, wealth through um, providing benefits for local communities. But this is something actually that we need to think about more carefully over the next 50 years. The GLA have recently said in relation to creative cities regeneration that actually there isn't any evidence of trickle-down effects to local communities, for the communities that are in uh, regeneration zones at the start of regeneration processes. So this is something we definitely need to invest uh, research into. And many urban studies scholars have in fact suggested that current regeneration strategies actively disadvantage and displace rather than improve the lives of those in whose name they proceed. So according to them, London in 2062 might not be a city, won't be a city necessarily of, of greater equality of wealth, but will be one of uh, polarization, we saw this in Ben's slide just now, of greater polarization of wealth, but also of health and, and well-being. Okay, so from the workshop, this rather bleak list of, um, of issues came up that I just wanted to quickly run through um, that we might expect to see. So increased displacement of local communities and, and the destruction of um, the very kind of mixed communities that we talk about when we, when we talk about the aims of regeneration. Um, the, the, the destruction of the idea of London as a, as an actually a, as a tolerant city. The reinforcement of this general trend of excluding low-income households from living in central London, um, increasing inequalities to access to housing, this, uh, this debate about affordable housing is really key, um, continued decline and fragmentation of the affordable housing stock, this, in stock, this incredibly complex market already of social housing providers um, being very much pressured by uh, the government to act in particular ways. Um, Perhaps, perhaps we need to go back to an earlier idea of, of social registered landlords um, or to explore new models. Um, also, the polarization of the city through, through intensive pockets of investment and disinvestment and the loss of public space to privately managed estates with detrimental uh, consequences on citizenship and the sense of community and belonging in the city. So these are all points that came up, and obviously these are all big issues, and we're not going to wrap them up neatly now. But I wanted to, to outline um, five, if you like, grand challenges for uh, regeneration practice moving forward. And there are colleagues who, who, who would argue now that actually regeneration is a redundant concept. We need to resist regen regeneration because regeneration equates to gentrification. But I would like to think that perhaps we can develop new models of, of ethical uh, regeneration, and this is what I've been uh, discussing with colleagues recently. So, just to run through those, um, 
you know, I think we need to move to a more encrypt. These, these might sound naive and oversimplifying uh, over um, over issues, but I think these, you know, we need to actually go back to basic what are the ethics of good regeneration. So incremental and contextual urbanization. It seems quite shocking that despite rhetoric otherwise, um, we are still pursuing urbanization of the city through tabula rasa, through clean sweet sweep, sorry, not sweet, urbanism. Um, and since the mid-1970s, um, state-led regeneration has given way to a more market-led uh, laissez-faire approach. Um, but we're still pursuing this kind of large-scale um, uh, clean slate urbanism. And in spite of the value attached to heritage and diversity, our large-scale redevelopment projects in working-class areas are particularly characterized by this approach. Um, and break up communities. And so this, is, this goes against one of the key ideas that came up for me in the London 20, 2062 project, was that to, to face these difficult challenges in the future, we need strong and resilient communities. So why are we breaking up these communities now? Um, secondly, um, we need to think of and uh, work on mechanisms for preserving affordability in regeneration zones. So as we improve the physical character of the city and change its socio-economic um, composition, we need to develop ways of preserving affordability for a wide group of people and prioritizing um, bringing back social value from increased land values um, for a greater number of people. Um, and this obviously requires radical shifts in our thinking and, and imagination. Uh, there are not easy ways of of answering this problem. But if we really believe in diversity, uh, then gentrification, which was a term coined at this university by Ruth Glass in the geography department in 1964, um, is not the way forward. So thirdly, um, we need to try and develop ways of tackling the housing crisis that are evidence-based. Um, so extracting, um, working on the housing crisis in a way which is is not subject to the ebbs and flows of, of, polit of politics and, and changes in uh, political policy, that actually over the next 50 years, um, you know, in the Olympic boroughs, housing is a key issue. Um, over 100,000 people on the three boroughs waiting list, um, overcrowding, poor quality and design, um, unregulated private rental market, poor connectivity, poor communal, communal areas, um, and a massive shortfall in affordable housing and family housing. Um, and a lack of onus, you know, is, uh, which is only getting worse, of, of developers to actually provide any affordable housing. So how can we move away from a politicized, polarized debate about housing towards a more evidence-based approach focused on need? Um, and then fourthly, um, how do we, this is a question that came up recently at UCL with the um, Healthy Cities publication of the Healthy Cities pamphlet that David referred to earlier, which I recommend you to read, but how can we reconnect the regeneration agenda in more meaningful ways to the uh, public health agenda, to, to um, uh, get, getting back to an idea of re regeneration is primarily about and driven by public health needs. I think this is really key. And then fifthly, um, how can we move towards uh, a more community-led and open and honest discourse that accompanies regeneration. I think a lot of those, uh, there a lot of communities affected by regeneration have become very skeptical about what it means and about the consultation process, 
processes that they've been subjected to, which they felt to be tokenistic. And a lot of the, the actual imaging practices and representational practices that we use within regeneration make people suspicious because they are used to, to deceive and coerce rather than to actually um, aid the process of, uh, of, of, uh, of connecting, um, co connecting communities to, to, the, to the research agenda in, in meaningful ways. So I think this is another key area that we should be thinking about. So these, I realize, are very big um, issues and questions, and I'm sure we were asked to be provocative, so I'm not going to um, I'm not going to apologise for that. But um, I look forward to hearing your your thoughts on these things, and I probably should leave it there. So thank you. Ben, thank you very much for those uh, thoughts and stimulating uh, questions. Now I'll turn to the the, the final uh, speaker in this part of the evening, uh, Janice uh, Morforth, who has been or is a visiting professor here at, again at uh, Bartlett, but also has uh, been or is still on the planning committee of the London 2012 Olympic Games. So not quite sure what she's been up to recently, but uh, I'm sure you've been quite busy and uh, perhaps we should congratulate you. You can take all the credit for the Olympics while you're here, but uh, we'll hear your thoughts about some aspects of the future of London. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, good evening, everybody. Um, I'm in a slightly difficult position because I'm still associated with the Olympics, so I can't say much about that because I'm still involved to the end of the month. But I thought coming at the end, it's a rather privileged position because um, uh, we've, had the grand, we've had these uh, discussions, we've, we've had the, uh, the sessions to think about that, and we've had the summation this evening. So what I'm going to try to do perhaps is something slightly different. I'm going to take us, so I hope you'll come with me anyway, to 2062, when I'm going to see where we are and take a look back to see, to see what's happened, what has come about, have any of these, these things actually occurred. So um, here we are in 2062, um, and thinking about this, 100 years ago, in 1962, uh, the swinging 60s in London were just about to begin. Uh, London was the centre of world news, um, front covers of international magazines and the world's media were very curious about what was going on in, in, in London at the time. Uh, London was loosening its belt and, and it opened up a huge period of creativity and change that started the separation of London from the rest of the country. Uh, was this where the seeds of change for the creation of the London city-state were sown? London was and wanted to be different. The real turning point came in 1999. Devolution in Scotland and, and Wales and the powers given to the Mayor uh, of London started an irrevocable process of separation. When, when Scotland voted for independence in 2014, the transition to the federal state of Great Britain began in earnest. Then, as now, it was the role of England that seemed to be the big issue. And it is hard to look back now from 2062 without remembering those intense debates about, where, about the establishment and location of the English Parliament. The main concern was about where it would sit. And when Manchester was chosen, 
it seemed to galvanise London's position as an international outward global city and as a separate part of the UK. Even 50 years ago, in 2012, the Mayor of London had more powers than any other elected politician uh, in the UK apart from the Prime Minister. So looking back, what led to the creation of the London city-state after the referendum in Scotland? And what difference has it made? Well, firstly, the UK referendum to leave the uh, European Union put London at odds with England, and it found that it had more in common with Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. The federal structure of Great Britain, as it was devolved, immediately demonstrated um, that the, uh, the leadership, vision, and agenda for England was different from the drive and determination of London and its people. London was already separate in its governance, so why not take the next step? Manchester was always interested in running the rest of the country. <laughs> Apologies to any Mancunians. Um, when, the, when the Blair government set up Manchester as the second English growth pole after 1997, not many people noticed the way in which it was consistently privileged through government decisions made by both Labour and coalition governments. Devolved spending, new local authority arrangements, and eventually uh, transferring taxation and civil servants to the Greater Manchester Authority showed the government's intent. And if you think those last two things are rather strange, they're already happening. So that's not, uh, that's, that's not prediction, that's, that's fact. So when it was proposed in 2016 that the government of England should move to Manchester, uh, London wanted the UK government to stay in London. Uh, this separation was needed to enforce some independence on England, but London feared what might follow. In the end, the establishment of the English Parliament in Manchester and the associated move of some civil servants created a much smaller governance machine in London. And so, uh, as many civil servants faced with a move to Manchester, opted out through retirement uh, and stayed in London, particularly as pensions could no longer be guaranteed, um, it also led to a reduction of the UK government as well. Um, however, the effects of this change in the seat of government for England could only be anticipated as being more important at the time, given the amount of uh, debate they engendered. What has proved more critical to, government, uh, to London's position is the creation of the United States of Europe, the US of E, in 2057, 100 years after the EU was formed in 1957. Um, any doubters on this? read Mr. Barroso's speech yesterday. Uh, since the UK-EU in-out referendum in 2018, the potential for different relationships between the nations in the UK and the, U and the EU has emerged. The decision of the UK to opt out and the subsequent decisions of Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland to opt back in to the EU created a way for London to rejoin the EU and supported its transition uh, uh, to the United States of Europe. This has been a difficult path to take, not least for London's economy, and through the transfer to the euro. 
But without this, London was faced with a major threat to its international position. Uh, yet despite these changes in government structure and institutions, is London any different from the way it was 50 years ago for ordinary Londoners? Firstly, there are more Londoners. London has continued to grow, not just in the centre, but also in those high-priced housing areas of Barking, Romford and Dagenham that accompanied the East London Airport expansions, plural. Of course, it would be difficult to accommodate so many people if there were still private cars. But the decision to abolish the use of cars in Zones 1 and 2 in London has meant more bikes and buses, which have now become the, the predominant modes of transport. It is rare to see a petrol filling station or car park within these areas now, Zones 1 and 2, most having been redeveloped for housing in the 2020s and 2030s. It has also opened streets to more walking and running, which most people do on, uh, every day. Uh, much of London's housing looks the same, but the major housing retrofitting programme, which began after the nuclear energy crisis in the 2020s, has also had a major effect. And uh, I suppose you know that uh, we have a, re a real difficulty about replacing our nuclear energy just at the minute, and this might, might well happen. Uh, London is no longer dependent on external energy supplies and those long-held objections to local energy stations have been tempered by the domestic energy production modules that most buildings now have. London now has more parks, green space and wildlife than many rural areas as streets and roads have been planted with trees and shrubs in place of the cars and the traffic signs. The dramatic reduction in food consumption in the 2020s, when high sugar, fatty and processed foods were banned, has had the same effect on health as earlier bans on tobacco and alcohol. And only today, New York has banned large-sized fizzy drinks. So, not so, not so uh, off the wall. Uh, London may be a larger and denser city, but it's now more self-sustaining than it's ever been. So... What next for London? Well, 2062 heralds a new swinging 60s era. Many of today's active people were born in the 1960s. So I'm assuming people are going to live and be active till they're 100. So being, a, being a 100 years old is going to be the new 60 or the new 70. Um, and uh, are the product of the swinging 60s generation. Um, and after all, Boris did say that the Olympic Games was going to create another generation, didn't he? So, um, so what, is, what has London learned in this last century? Well, it's learned that change is inevitable, but London's energy to lead its own future is not diminished. London is now at the heart of the United States of Europe and a, and a, a leading member of the Federated State of Great Britain. Only the problem of England remains. But that isn't a problem for London. Thank you. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you very much. So we've seen two very contrasting views, really. Almost a dystopic, uh, sort of nihilistic approach to the future of London with increasing uh, inequality and, and misery that uh, Ben was... Uh, almost an anticipating as the status quo continued. We've seen perhaps a utopian renaissance for the city-state. And 
all of these options are available to us. So I think with that and the overview that we had from Ben, I'd um, throw the, the questioning open to the floor for um, further interrogation of tonight's wonderful speakers. But before we do that, perhaps we could have a round of applause for all three of them, because I think they've said I'm really excited. Basically. So we have uh, microphones being wielded by colleagues, and so if there are any questions, who would like to start? We have one at the front here, if you can run down, and then the second one there. So. Hello, John Danzig. Uh, I take everything with a pinch of salt because I don't think futurists have been very successful in the past on predicting the future, and in fact, they've been abysmally wrong. But I do remember an Evening Standard mock-up of London in about 2060. It might have been 2100, uh, or 21100, and uh, it actually showed <laughs> London absolutely covered in water. We were all drowning. So I think all the plans are probably wrong. We need to be starting a program now of mass swimming lessons. And also, we need to be building a lot of boats. And all your plans are underwater. OK, I think we can have some comments on that. Projected sea level rises with climate change in the next 50 to 100 years, 10, centime 10 centimetres, something like that? I mean, the only comment I would make on that is that actually in one of the sessions, um, we did look at quite a lot of, um, of architectural representations of the 50-year future, and a lot of them tended to be very dystopic and to show the city of London in ruins and to show flooding and so on as a way of kind of playing out the scenarios of, of um, climate change and economic crisis as well. So it's, you know, if you go to the architecture school down the road in the Bartlett, that, that's what architects are speculating on at the moment. So. Uh, we'll be drinking seawater in 50 years' time. <laughs> Desalinated, so, well, I hope. Exactly. So I think, no doubt, climate change, very important factor. Sea level change is happening, perhaps not right at the rate that might be uh, shown in the standard, although obviously exposure to surges and extreme events will become more uh, problematic, and so the whole issue of the next Thames barrier is an issue which has to be addressed. And also those plans for housing to the east of the Thames barrier, I think is also quite an interesting um, area for consideration in the future as well. Thank you. A question over there, yes. Thank you. Patrick Hughes, Director of Salient Work. I um, uh, was hugely interested by what you had to say, but there was one disappointment. Um, the word London, of course, featured frequently in what you had to say, but only one of you used the word Londoners, and that was once. That was you, Janice. And I think, if I may say so, that there's a sense from what you've said this evening, and I can't speak for the rest of your research, that you've fallen into the trap of thinking more about the hardware than the software of the city. I think we need to think more about Londoners and think of them as a unique resource and opportunity, particularly in all their glorious diversity, which really you haven't touched on at all, and their youthful energy. In other words, their fascinating cultural and um, population demographic. Would you like to comment on that? Well, so I was trying to guess at that by saying that you know, London was going to take charge of itself and the decisions that are taken to ban cars and to, you know, to kind of turn the city over to itself and rethink about how it was using that city 
was, was um, one of the sort of themes that I, I was trying to explore. And I agree with you that the, the diversity of London is its strength. But I think, I wonder almost if we've moved beyond remarking on it because it is so fundamental to London. It is what London is. So there's no, you know, how, how do we, um, do we find a new language about just accepting that and, and then seeing that as enormous strength, which it is. Um, and I think that strength um, is the thing that's going to drive London, actually. Um, and that's really what I was, was trying to uh, elaborate on. Ben Harris. Sure. I, I mean, I, I, I would agree with you as well. Um, I, I guess what, I mean, partially picking up on, on some of the things Ben was saying about having a, a, a sort of a common definition or a new definition of what we mean by urban regeneration. I mean, by the very nature of the work that we do at Future of London, you know, our major focus is, is on the built environment. Um, uh, whether it's necessarily fair to uh, burden uh, the word urban regeneration with also having to deal with other areas of economic development or whether actually we're looking at uh, a related and very, very important set of issues and actually, given the state of the public finances, probably something which we're going to need to focus on more uh, in London and, and, and certainly the government is, is, is clearly focused on it. But there's also no getting away from the fact that they are uh, very, very difficult, often uh, not altogether tangible challenges as well uh, that often involve uh, specific uh, families uh, with, with long-term worklessness issues. Uh, etc., which, uh, from the state's point of view, are, are, are very difficult to, to try and intervene. Uh, far, perhaps far more difficult to imagine intervening in than managing to build some new infrastructure or, or, or some new some new houses. So, um, I, I, I absolutely take the point, um, and and it's it's surely something which we're going to hear more of in, in public policy debates going forward. Ben, you, you mentioned I think the loss of the mixed community was one of the threats that you highlighted. Perhaps you could. Yeah, sure. I think I was talking a lot about Londoners, but just not using that word. I was talking about the community and how I think diversity requires certain parts of the city to, city to, to be affordable. And the, regeneration, the, the dominant regeneration practices at the moment uh, do not work towards um, affordability being maintained over the long term. So I think that's, that was a key point that I wanted to raise. And also that uh, regeneration should be, in fact, community-led, not just involving communities or consulting communities that actually, you know, the research has shown that it's successful <laughs> if it's community-led um, rather than um, being imposed. So. Thank you. I have a question here. Ben stressed the problem of social div divide, poor people against rich people. But what's, first of all, we have to understand, what are these poor people going to be doing in London? in 50 years' time, given the labour-saving device, technology and science, what's going to be their role? Will they be here in London? Before you say there's going to be a social divide, will they be here in London, in a big city? Can you share with us what you think they're going to be doing in the poor people in 50 years' time? Sure. I mean, if you look at Henry Mayhew's mid-19th century London life and the London poor, a lot of those jobs are still around in London. A lot, you know, a lot of current service jobs would be recognisable from that. So I'm sorry, but I don't believe that the, the jobs are, and the labour is going to change, change that, that much. You know, the city needs to be serviced. The city, I think Dominic Lepore, the French philosopher, says, the city is a jewel fed by lowly operations. And, you know, it still will be in 50 years' time. So, so I have Yes, yes, please. You envisage, then, uh, same employment situations? Not, the, not exactly the same, but I, I think there will be... 50 Basically, years is not that far ahead. Basically the same, though. 
I mean, you've got to have hotels, you've got to have shops, you've got to have transport, people running the transport. Yeah. I've been around for 60 years as a worker and 20 as a developing individual. I've worked for four local authorities and I've been in planning, not your side of it, but legal planning. Mm -hmm. All these things take time. Point one I would make is add another 50 years because any redevelopment in this huge city will be patching. Your recent example of the Olympic Games area is probably a way ahead for clearing an area, but we haven't got too many areas like that to be cleared. Otherwise, you've got to knock down stuff before you put stuff up. Now that will take a lot of time because a lot of opposition. Unless you say, we're going to take over, uh, I used to live in Islington, uh, we're going to take over Islington and redevelop it. The state is going to do it because that's the only way you'll get something done in its entirety. The rest of it will be biting into certain areas, developing those areas. Another five or ten years later, you'll do another one. You've got to add, your, add another 50 years to your uh, plan. But I do think that once you've decided on an area, such as the one, well, the Olympic Games, the area progress was a little bit dodgy at one stage, and then somebody uh, pressed the lever and it was moved up. Now, you've got to face it, these things can go wrong. Look at what's happening in the West End, West End, Tottenham Court Road area. It's, it was chaos for ages. Who suffers? Londoners. I'm a Londoner. So you can't envisage big developments without a very careful plan. You've got 33 London boroughs, you've got to knock the heads together of the 33 town clerks, or clerks, London borough clerks. You've got a heck of a problem in getting a plan that really is meaningful. The plans that Created, were created post-war, have taken ages to implement. All of the time since the war, we're still creaking at the edges with some. So, so it's, going to take yeah. 50, it's going to take another 50 years, and it's going to take big thinking to get areas redeveloped. Mm -hmm. Now, if you can knock that down, I'm, I'm interested. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not suggest. I don't think we're suggesting that we'll have London redeveloped by 2062. But uh, Ben, you're, you're engaged with a lot mm. of. Uh, authorities. Perhaps you'd like to comment on the challenges of the fragmentation of the municipality into the boroughs and so forth in developing coherent plans. Sure. I mean, I, I, I guess that's a long-standing problem for London. Um, I mean, you know, it's not the case that boroughs don't work together and don't work together with other agencies. But I guess what I would add to um, to your point is that um, we are entering into a period, or we're, we're now in a period, where uh, the levels of public investment that we've seen in these kind of developments um, just isn't going to be uh, available. And so never mind anything on the scale of the Olympics, even, even smaller regeneration schemes that have received significant public subsidy, um, that's off the agenda for the foreseeable future. And so we need to find new models uh, you know, as, as well as presenting a big challenge, that, that is an opportunity to, to, to find new models of, of conceiving of regeneration um, and of, of delivering it. Um, but I think we're probably quite a way off. I mean, there are specific instances within London where public bodies have significant land holdings that are significant, uh, that, that are suitable for, for regeneration and can be used. Um, but that's not necessarily the case across the piece, and they're not necessarily in the parts of London that you would seek to redevelop. Um, so. 
I agree with you. It's a very big challenge, and it's 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 not um, going to get easier anytime soon. But 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 we do need to meet it. Janice. Um, I think I, I want to sort of say I do agree with one of the points that you made, and that was around um, public authorities building again. Um, we already have at least four London boroughs who set up housing companies, and uh, the only time in our history when we had huge numbers of houses or, or dwellings being built was actually at a time when <coughs> local authorities were building them, even before RSLs, before housing associations. Now, um, I'm not sure I agree with the point about there being no money, because if we look at the powers in the 2011 Localism Act, then um, local authorities and indeed the, all the different accounting standards are changing, the, the ability to, for local authorities now to capitalise development, set up development companies capitalised on their own assets. Now, if you can't do that in London, you can't do it anywhere, and lots of places across the country are doing it, Liverpool and, you know, in the northeast. So, actually, London boroughs are sitting on huge assets which don't need to sell, they need to capitalise, and if you look at the uh, banks and look at the city, they're sitting on piles of cash, pension funds and so on, looking for safe investment, patient investment. So, I think until... London boroughs really start building again, not council houses, but housing for different tenures, a mixture of tenures. Um, I think that's going to be the way uh, of moving forward. And that's why I was suggesting looking at car parks and looking at these kind of sites now that we don't need so much. Um, and there are still places in London. Anyone been on a train through Wilsdon recently? I mean, there's, more, there's masses of land in London that we just don't see. So that would be my... Okay, okay we have a question over here. <laughs> Um, I just wanted to build on some of the comments that came from the gentleman in the audience earlier around the lack of a focus on the demographic of London and Londoners in some of your assessments of what London will look like. And one of the things that I was surprised not to hear any of you mention, given the, um, the implications it has for the built environment, for issues around affordability within the capital, um, and also for local authority finance, is around... Um, the changing demographic towards older people within the city. And when you're talking about getting regeneration back to something that isn't about moving people who are, who are viewed to be problematic out of a particular space, how you imagine that a London of 2062 is addressing that challenge and how that might impact on what the built environment begins to look like? Well, I think, Janice, you'd solve the problem by making 100 the new 60, but perhaps you'd like to comment on that first. Um, well, I think, I mean, A, we probably are going to have to get off the idea of buying houses for a bit, so I think we'll end up doing that until there's another... If, until the government, the Treasury can come up with a new pension product, we're all stuck with buying houses if we can, as our longer-term um, sort of nest egg for the future. Um, thinking about um, older people and thinking about affordability, the only way to challenge the market is to create more units and, uh, or more dwellings. And the only, the only organisations I can see who can really break the land hoarding tendencies of housing developers with consents and land is actually the public sector who can actually put more... Um, as soon as the public sector builds more, it actually reduces the value of the sites owned and ho being hoarded by developers. And I think that's what we've got to see. So that, so, and I agree. You need you need other interventions. You need, um, you know, to think differently. Uh, uh, the government, you know, the, the current approaches clearly are not sustainable in the long term. So.
agree we're not doing enough now. I'm just saying we've got to attack it in quite a different way. And if you go back to think about Harold Macmillan and, you know, wherever it was, uh, how many homes a year we were building, most of those homes were being built by the public sector, not just in London, but across England. And to some extent, we've got to get back to that um, in, in different ways. And, I, you know, I can't wave a wand to make it happen. But that's the only way, it seems to me, you're going to increase the volume. And looking at other uses for buildings. Yeah, well, we can't, can't have a dialogue. I want to hear Sorry. panel members. Ben, you're, you, you mentioned the, the healthy cities and, and the, the problem with the demographic and the age profile. Would you like to expand about how you think that might be addressed? Sure. I mean, um, just to say that um, that issue came up in one of the workshops that we ran um, and the, the need for better housing for the elderly, but also um, in terms of a more active um, elderly population as well. Um, so I think that's really important. Um, I just wanted to ask, am I allowed to ask a question to Charles? <laughs> um, so in terms of uh, thinking about new models of affordability, one of the things that's come up in urban lab workshops that we've been running and also that Boris has been talking about um, is community land trust. And I was just wondering what you think of that, that model, because it seems, it seems I mean, something that people are positive about. I think it is, but I don't think it's an, I think it's one one contribution, but I don't think it's going to produce the volume required on its own, would be my view. So it, I'd, I'd support it wholeheartedly, but I don't think that's the only measure. Okay, we've got lots of other questions. There's a gentleman here, first of all. Uh, Paul Burbeck. Um, question for Ben Campkin, really. I don't disagree with uh, your ethical principles for regeneration, um, but I just wondered if you could say a little bit about how you think that those might be embedded in a regeneration schemes, given that the, uh, if anything, the, ten the political economic tendency is for uh, many of those issues not to be looked at. So, for example, in relationship to housing need, that's virtually a concept which is redundant as far as a lot of local authorities are concerned, because essentially, as you well know, when you look at regeneration schemes that are being done, both in Labour and Conservative authorities across London, the, the, the net effect of those regeneration schemes is invariably that either you get no increase in social housing or you get actually a reduction in social housing as the, as the older states get bulldozed and then you get lots of private developments. So the question is really then, how, how, how can one embed those ethical principles into the current political economic structures given that they seem to be, if anything, going against those very laudable aims. No, I agree, and I there is no easy answer to that question. They, they are all, almost all, directly opposed to the current trend. So um, that's, this, is, this is the key question. But I, I think in terms of setting a research agenda, these, these are kind of issues that we should be dealing with. And I, you know, I don't think this was about a dystopic projection of the future. I think actually my assess assessment was meant to be a kind of realistic, it might sound pessimistic, but it's actually realistic of what's happening now in terms of what the research tells us. So it was not a dystopic projection of the future. It's um, just the future is, is dystopic. <laughs> yeah. I think just yeah. what, what I would add, and, and partially in response to, to, to Janice's point as well, I think ultimately what's going to be needed, certainly within uh, local government, um, is a culture shift, I think, in terms of what, um, what boroughs are for. And, and 
Certainly, I think an outcome from, from the Localism Act will be that you'll see a, a, a divergence in approach across London. I mean, that's not necessarily something new, but it will probably be exacerbated where some boroughs decide, actually, yes, it is our role to build houses, um, and we'll seek to, to do that, and we've got the land to do it, and we've got the expertise to do it, or we can bring it in. And, and others will very much see that that's not their role. And, and, and you just have to look at boroughs like Barnet and others who are actually seeking to commission out services uh, and, and actually see their role as, as being a much more a coordinating one, I suppose. So it, it's, uh, Ben's absolutely right. There are no easy answers, and we're not going to get there very quickly. Um, but you can see across London areas of experimentation where boroughs are behaving differently. Um, and how successful or otherwise, how replicable those models are going to be, well, well, we'll find out, I suppose. Gentlemen at the back. Hi, good evening, Gary Hayes. Um, I'd like to ask the question about technology. I sit in front of a computer 14, 16 hours a day. What were you doing 50 years ago? Um, and in 50 years' time, materials, energy will be universal. We already have the solutions so we can have as much energy as we want. The change in human performance will be significant with the growth of intelligence, artificial. How do you see the city of the future? So, easy question. An easy question, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Janice, since you did speak of the future, perhaps know, you could well, start. I kind of avoided technology because it's, I think that's one of the most difficult areas to predict. Um, if you think back 50 years to the, early si to the early 60s, then I think people were not even then much using phones, landlines. I think it was very much a paper-based face-to-face -face type working environment. Um, and then gradually it became more phone-based and then obviously um, to where we are now. So I just think it's quite difficult to predict how we're going to respond to you know, devices that, new devices that are appearing almost weekly that offer us, offer us new functionality. But it seems to me at the moment, if you look at the amount of time that people, what was it, most people, lots of people in business are now spending more time on Twitter, I was reading today, on Twitter, um, than um, business people across Europe, than actually reading The Economist or Financial Times or Wall Street Journal or whatever. Um, so it seems to me that may go too far in one direction because it, although it's very social, it's also very isolating if you're constantly looking at a screen. Um, and I wonder if we'll come back to something that's a bit more personal, but I, I think it is a difficult area to predict, um, and whatever we said today will be wrong tomorrow, I think. Ben, ben has discovered courage to answer. I have. Um, <laughs> I, I, exactly. Um, no, I, I guess what, what I would say is, I mean, it, it, so this, this sort of proposition that you put forward, I suppose, is, is one that in various forms, I guess we've heard uh, a number of times in the past, and, and actually is often used to kind of say, well, you won't need to live in the cities anymore um, because technology will allow you to do all the business that you need to do and actually have all of the advantages of living in a, in a nice leafy countryside area um, and, and avoid the pollution and the congestion and all the rest of it. And actually all of the prevailing evidence suggests that that's not the case and, and, and the, the continual importance of face-to-face -face interactions will, will remain um, and the trust that they entail and the uh, interactions between talented people that... that, that is currently a, a hallmark of the London economy will continue to be important, even if we are spending 12 to 16 hours uh, a day in front of computer screens. Yes, I mean, thanks to Genesis Committee, I guess uh, a lot of us were, 
was suggested we work at home over the Olympics, and it was very, very, very fun for a bit. But I, I also noticed a lot of colleagues couldn't wait to get back to uh, have a chat over the uh, uh, coffee to talk about the Olympics, probably. That's it. All right, thank you. Stephen Boxall from Regeneration X. I'm an independent regeneration consultant. I want to bring up London's hinterland. It's often said that London's economic footprint is much larger than its political boundaries. So to what extent do you think um, the hinterland might change and what extent does it have to change for London to have all these changes that you were talking about? And I think it also connected that with that, a point someone else made from the audience. The rich are going to have jobs. The poor are going to have jobs to serve the rich. What about the middle? I mean, already the middle has been hollowed out. Ben, you were talking about the becoming a more unequal society, mm -hmm. which suggests you know there's lots of activity at the bottom and people at the top, not in the middle. So, what do you have any thoughts on this? Um, well, I think London is a city where there are polarisations all over the city. It's not so easy to describe it as a rich centre and a poor outskirts. It's never been like that, and um, so I think the polarisation will still be dispersed around the city. Um, and then in terms of the hinterland, one of the things that came up in the workshop that I was at was, was about the need to develop on, on the green belt and green corridors or green wedges. So I guess that's, that's a big debate, which probably Janice will be able to say something on in terms of the, mm -hmm. the immediate future. But. I mean, I think the, the movements in London, the transport movements, journey to work, um, is not as clear or is not um, as we might think it is compared, I mean, if we think back 50 years ago, the sort of in-out movements, which we think are typical, probably, probably were. But if we think now, um, many of the movements are um, east-west or, you know, lateral um, and actually out-in, um, 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 sorry, in-out. So when I used to, years ago, I used to travel and work in Woking, and I live in Clapham, near Clapham Junction, is my station. So I was kind of the only person getting on the train, and now masses of people get on the train in Clapham Junction to go to Woking. If you go to Woking, um, which is a place that used to have heavy commuting into London, actually now a much higher proportion of people in Woking now li uh, work locally rather than travel into London. Yes, people do travel in, but proportionately um, that you know, is more, much more even than it was, say, 30 years ago. Um, so in a way, what might happen is that hinterlands become, over time, say, more self-sufficient, but, but actually you know, the, their networks develop and they change the way they work. Um, I think we also need to think about the effect of Crossrail and what that will do. And the, the, the stealthy increase of orbital rail is changing the way people are using London as well. So. The, the, you might argue that the real issue is can the centre of London maintain its authoritative position when um, the, all these other things are, are happening. So I, I think that's maybe an area that will continue to change. Janice, I'll just ask you a question. Of the, the London city-state loses its control over and no need for a green belt because that's governed by England. So would we reach a situation where, in your scenario, we had a gentrified city with leafy avenues where, where there were previously bus lanes and so forth, and shanty towns developing around uh, Hertfordshire, and St Albans becomes the new, uh, the new sink space for, yes. for the gas starbiters to be brought into London to support its uh, affluent uh, middle classes. Well, Slough already has the most uh, beds in sheds. We don't have to wait for the future for that, certainly. Um, 
I don't know. I, th I think that I think that places will kind of. I mean, if we look at if you think something like um, functional economic areas and local enterprise partnerships are really going to work, and I think they're going to be the new local authorities of the future, actually. But if that is going to work, and they're going to have potentially the same dynamics and the same sort. Of, I mean, the whole of England is going to be covered with largish areas which are going to be like transport for London and I don't you know that's just about to happen in 2014 all the areas outside London are just forming into those groups now by the end of this month I think if one 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 area where London is weaker is that it doesn't actually look to see what's happening elsewhere um, it gets to its boundary and is, is a bit sort of aloof from the rest but actually the rest of England is getting organized and the question is what effect would that be for London just one of the black uh, Good evening, uh, Paul Campy. Um, I think Ben touched upon uh, privately managed land, and um, sorry, Ben Kampkin um, touched on privately managed land. And with many of the thoroughfares to the Olympic Park actually being Westfield, Stratford City, where uh, private security. Um, uh, roamed those thoroughfares and where photography was um, not encouraged, shall we say. Do you think there's an inevitability that we'll have more of those sorts of developments where previously perhaps uh, public land becomes privately managed? Do you think that's inevitable and do you think uh, that's a good thing uh, or a necessary thing for future regenerations? Well, I wouldn't want to say it was inevitable, but it's definitely the trend and it does fundamentally change the character of of, of what those spaces are and what you know what relationship people have to them um, and what powers they have to use them and to um, uh, interact in those spaces so for me it's not, you know it's something that a lot of people are very critical of at the moment so Anna Minton the journalist with her book ground control um, fear and happiness in the 21st century city writing about the kind of Securitization of public space, so that and mm. the turning of public spaces into an image of public space, but actually places that are actually highly controlled and ordered. Um. I mean, I think just factually, the um, obviously you can't compare Stratford or Olympic Park in games mode to the rest of the time, and we'll have to see what it looks like next year when it's opened on the first anniversary. Um, but I would say, uh, on a just sort of factual point that because the park is in different boroughs, when we were looking at design standards on the committee for roads, footpaths, cycleways, we made sure that each of the boroughs had their own standards adopted in their part of the park mm. so that they can adopt them without any problem when they're passed over. And, and you know, I think old-style regeneration or old-style top-down UDC type approaches would have just done one standard across the piece and let them get on with it. Whereas we were very sensitive to thinking about the management afterwards, um, realizing that, that that would be the case. So I, you know, I think it's too early to say, really. And I mean, just thinking panel and again picking up on Janice's point earlier of, of um, London Borough land holdings and, and also the land that's now been transferred in the GLA. It's obviously the case that. Um, both Boas and the GLA, you know, have some influence over, over that. And, and if, you know, um, that those are political decisions that, that will be taken um, at that level. And, and, and therefore, you know, that there's no reason why it would necessarily be, be the case, I would say. So I've just shown my naivety by being shocked and surprised that different boroughs have different standards on footpaths. Oh, but, um, exactly <laughs> way to the ones. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Um, a lot of what was said here, um, 
um, I think assumes a certain path of um, um, growth or um, London maintaining its global lead, mm. uh, talking about wealth that would allow regeneration and uh, population growth. Um, I just wonder if we are kind of daring to look far enough into the future, 2062. Um, you know, in the 1930s, the, um, I don't think anybody would imagine that the British Empire would be gone uh, only 20 years later. Well, maybe there were signs, but or that the the Docklands would would suddenly, you know, within a, a decade or two, would disappear. Um, and now that we see, you know, the growth of Asia, the Middle East, Africa, uh, a lot of um, London's success is based on migration, on on international companies. It is possible, I mean, maybe we're not kind of stretching our imagination enough that maybe in 50 years London will lose its significance in the global economy. Um, it could, yeah. I mean, the, the point I was making about investment was the, not about global wealth, but the fact that there's already a certain asset value in London that can, that can be utilised and there are resources that can be deployed to, to utilise that. If you think about London uh, globally, then um, I think that, um, yeah, I, I agree with what somebody else said, that it takes a long time to change. Mm. And, you know, we thought that, um, you know, China was going to make the lead, and still may they, but their growth rate has come down. We've seen that this week. They're actually, you know, way, way lower than their target. We have an uncertain leadership election. We don't know who's going to take over in China. So all no, global capital doesn't want to go to uncertainty. And London you know, um, has its problems in relation to financial regulation seem to me to be more critical than anything else about threats from China. It's the way it's actually managed itself. But if it can get through that, then um, you know, somewhere in Europe is going to be um, that. And, and the, the issue about London being a capital city and having that international role is not one that's shared by anywhere, anywhere else at all. It's not shared by New York, for example. So um, you know, it has a lot going for it. No, I mean, I, I, would, I would echo uh, what China said. I, I suppose, I mean, the, the, I mean, having said that, there is a, I guess, you know, we don't have to look too far back into the past to, to a time when London's population was falling, actually. And, and, and you know, you would have probably struggled to predict, um, you know, the, 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 the role of London in the UK economy that, that it now takes. So, I mean, I, I suppose there is a point there that, you know, we don't want to become complacent about London's um, preeminence on, on the global stage. I think there's also probably a point that um, picks up on some of the things that Ben has said, um, or that we've all said really, um, that, it, that, it's like, that it is important that it's likely to become more important that we remember um, who growth is for and, and, and that it makes sure that it's serving Londoners. And, and you know, for example, the uh, uh, influx of overseas investment in London property is a fantastic example of that. Um, it's heralded as a sign of success and of buoyancy in the London housing market. But you don't have to look too hard at the London housing market to see that, yes, it may be buoyant, but it's fundamentally dysfunctional and it's not serving the interests of Londoners uh, in, 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 in many ways. So that's something which we must continue to look at and, and it's probably going to be, become more important. I said originally when we started that UCL describes itself as London's global university. Experience shows you can't have a global university in, in, in a city that isn't a global city. So it's our part of our mission 
at UCL to do what we can to ensure that London sustains its prosperity and its global position, because without that, we can't sustain our own global position. So there's a degree of enlightened self-interest in trying to make sure that we don't... It's not futurology that we're trying to do. But what we're trying to do is to anticipate, as best as we can, the challenges that our city faces and see what it is we can do to, to mitigate the negative and accentuate the positive. I think we have time for probably one more question. Lady there. Um, Mary Keneally, I'm very interested, in, and as you keep talking about a global city, a global city needs to be well-led. And I think my question to the panel is about leadership and the governance of London. There are, um, Janice made some great points about the issue about, you know, what kind of emerging city we want where, you know, we close the cars from zone one and two. How do we get to that ability to have that decision-making? Um, one of the Bens talked about, you know, uh, the idea that, you know, uh, I think, sorry, it, it crossed over between two of you, the question of capitalization and, and realization of assets. I've spent the last two years working for the six host boroughs and as their chief advisor on employment and skills. So there's a real issue about they had a single goal to coalesce around. That's been taken apart. And the question of collaboration going forward and how they move from being the host boroughs to the growth boroughs is exercising minds. But some of the issues, the way London's government governed at the moment, the role of the mayor actually dislocates the boroughs a lot of the time. And the question of um, the localism agenda, will it really allow the boroughs to move that forward? Or would that be seen as a threat to the mayor's powers? I think there's a disconnect there. And I'd like to hear from the panel on some of those issues. Happy to start, yes. Um, uh, I think you're right. I mean, there's huge tensions. Um, I mean, in, uh, London, um, in so many ways, is unique to the rest of the country, um, but perhaps none more so than the way it was, you know, uh, the impact that the Localism Act and those reforms have, have, uh, have played out, where regional policy has been disbanded across the rest of the country. It's actually been strengthened here. And I think there was a real concern, um, and which perhaps still exists, um, amongst London boroughs that actually far from being an empowering agenda for them, um, they've had power taken away from the top and, and that's gone up to the mayor and then potentially uh, the empowerment of neighbourhoods below them and, and, and actually it's made life much more difficult for London boroughs. I mean, whether that will actually be played out or not um, remains to be seen. Um, on your point about how do we get to Janice's um, utopian uh, vision of a car-free zone one and two, and speaking personally, that seems to me to be a very pleasant set of circumstances to arrive at. There is, of course, a, a sort of a, a democratic uh, you know, point within, within that, and that people do like their cars. Um, <laughs> and um, it seems, I mean, we've, uh, I was just meeting with, with, with colleagues at Transport for London today, and um, we all agreed that there is a kind of a danger that um, in living the kinds of lifestyles that we do, I don't drive personally, um, you can forget the fact that actually lots of people do depend on their cars in order to remain economically active. Um, and um, so uh, whether it's right that we'll have an all-powerful mayor that can just decree uh, those kind of things or not, um, I'm, I'm not 100% sure, although I do personally probably uh, share your enthusiasm for the outcome. Um, I, I guess I would reiterate some, just finally one of the points I made in, in the presentation where I, I, I fully expect there to be... Um, another round of devolution to London in some guise or another um, over the next uh, P 
period, um, probably leading up to the next general election. Um, quite what form that will take, I don't know whether that will be the devolution of, of, of particular revenue streams or, or funding pots. Um, but it's, it, you know, I, I'd be very surprised if the mayor doesn't want to try and capitalise on his uh, popularity within the Conservative Party, if nothing else, um, and, and try and push that, push that forward. But those tensions, I would imagine, between Borough leadership and the mayor and other organisations will remain. Janice? Well, I mean, I think um, you're going to have to have mayoral candidates with big ideas. I think that's an important thing. I mean, London is already the least car-dependent place in the country, and that was, those figures were published last week. So, uh, we, And actually, I think it's probably why Londoners older Londoners will live longer because they're used to walking, to, you know, using public transport to get to work, then they get their freedom pass. They, uh, there's a kind of culture of, of being on the move in London, which I think that distinguishes it now from a lot of other cities um, where they are more car dependent still, even though they do have, you know, good public transport. So I think that's, a, that's another issue. In terms of the boroughs, I mean, certainly the issue about amalgamating boroughs or to sort of reduce the number has been on the agenda at least since, well, since 1965 or 64, since we re reorganised last time. And London, London government is unique in the country, is going so long without any kind of um, reform. I mean, most other places have been reformed at least twice in that period. So... Uh, some people might say, oh, that's because it works. I think the others might say, well, it's because it's politically so difficult. And I think, the, I think the attempt to bring boroughs together to run services together has been a sort of stepping stone or attempted stepping stone to see if that would work. I don't think it will. Um, I, I suspect the change will come from underneath, and I'm fully expecting to have a holy parish to London um, before too long. And parishes now have the same legal powers as local authorities, and so, actually, you might get a different kind of change coming along with local, with local management. Um, um, and I think that's the one I'd be looking at. Do you want to say anything about our that St Pancras Parish? <laughs> uh, no, but just... Uh, <laughs> my fellow panellists have given very eloquent answers to that question. Um, I guess my, my only experience of dealing with um, the administrative... <coughs> boundaries in the city through my research is looking at pest control and how pest control is quite radically different in, in the different boroughs and pests are obviously a, a problem no that should be dealt boundaries. with <laughs> centrally and doesn't have respect for boundaries. So, um, but it, yeah, so if the fox can get over the border, it's free and free. Okay, well, we've had a chance to have a discussion on some of the points. There's so many more, I know. Sorry if you haven't had a chance to ask your question. You will have a chance, however, to... Uh, catch the panellists, we are inviting you to withdraw to one of the great uh, developments of London in 1828, the Wilkins Building in the Quadrangle um, across the street. Uh, there'll be wine and refreshments available there, and uh, hopefully our panel members will be able to join us and you can collar them further. But in the meantime, could I ask you to thank um, our panel members for their contribution to this evening?